0: You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. When I was a kid, my mom was an organist, and so I just grew up, we just went to church wherever mom played the organ. I wasn't that interested. I did get interested in this one particular moment, though. Uh, I was in some kind of class that I'm sure I was forced to be in, And they were having a a memory contest. They were memorizing a psalm. And I thought, I can do this. Because there was some kind of reward for it, which is why I wanted to do it. And so I worked hard, like outside of church, at home, memorizing this psalm. And I worked on it every day, and I got ready for it. The Sunday comes, and I wanted to go first. It's like, "Ah, let me go first. I get up in front of the—I think it might have been choir. I'm not sure. I get up in front of the other kids in the class or the choir, and I recite this psalm. I mean, word for word— Nailed it. And I sit back down, but I don't get a reward. I don't get a prize. And I'm thinking, something has gone horribly wrong here. What happened was, I memorized the wrong psalm. <laughs> a much more difficult psalm than we were supposed to memorize, I would add. I got nothing. <laughs> something very similar happens to this man in our text today. Now, he's often called the rich young ruler. You know, because he's rich and he's young and he rules something, I'm sure. Uh, But something goes horribly wrong. He thinks he's doing everything right, but it goes bad in the end. We've looked at a lot of encounters that people have had with Jesus in the book of Matthew. And over and over we see hurting people are are forgiven and restored. Sick people are healed. Sad people go away rejoicing. Uh, As we get toward the end of the book you know, and the mission gets clearer, the screws begin to tighten a little bit, and there's more conflict. We've seen with the disciples some conflict. But even then, you know, worst case, they go away corrected, but still a disciple. And this man in Matthew 19 is unique in all of the Gospels. He goes away grieved. In all of the Gospel accounts, there was only one occasion which somebody who receives an invitation to follow Jesus doesn't do it and it's this guy. Something has gone horribly wrong. And so we need to ask, what has gone wrong and why? Because possibly the same kind of thing could go wrong with us. There's a lot of stuff going on in this passage. Clearly it has something to say about money and possessions. Um, but it's also talking about eternal life and keeping in the commandments and how those things are related to each other. And so I would say the reason money and possessions are at the center of this conversation is because they're also at the center of this man's life. And so it could be about anything, anything that is at the center of your affections or aspirations, anything that has a certain kind of power in your life. and that's the question that should be on the front of our mind. What is that thing? What's at the center for me? For some of us, it actually is money and possessions. This will be incredibly relevant. Uh, for the rest of us, it is our blindness to the fact that it actually is money and possessions. That's at the center. Okay, maybe not for everybody, uh, but for probably more of us than we would suspect. Uh, let me just say this I, th- I think we would need to be open to that possibility if we're going to hear what God has to say in this text. And whatever it is, we need to come with open hands to say, Lord, would you please speak to the center? of my life today. So how do we do that? How do we see what's gone wrong here and maybe in our own lives? Uh, For our roadmap, we're gonna gonna take a roadmap given to us by John Calvin uh, and his Institutes, which is his seminal work, he opens it with this with this sentence. He says Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts knowledge of God, And knowledge of ourselves. And he goes on to talk about how those are intertwined, right? Uh, Knowledge of one sharpens or enhances our knowledge of the other. But the opposite is true as well. A lack of understanding of one diminishes or distorts our understanding of the other. And so we need a, a right and good and healthy knowledge of God and a right and good and healthy knowledge of ourselves. That will help us to see what's going on in this text. Uh, Let's start by talking about a knowledge of God. Look in verse 16, and just try to notice this man's perception of God. Behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments." Uh, All the conflict stories that we've looked at have a misunderstanding about God, about who Jesus is and what His priorities are. And we see this over and over with the disciples. The disciples have some understanding of who God is, of what greatness is, of what the kingdom is, of who the Messiah is, and they're constantly trying to fit Jesus into their understanding of those things. And the same is true of us. We, We all have ideas about who God is and what He cares about. And some of those ideas are like from Scripture. They're good and true. But some of them are not from Scripture. Some of them are just informed by our culture. Some of our uh, perceptions of who God is are really about our own personalities and preferences. It just happens without us even knowing it. I've shared this quote before, but it's fitting here. Uh, Patrick Morley says, there is, a, there is a God who is, and there is a God that we want. And the turning point in our lives comes when we stop seeking the God we want and we start seeking the God who is. You see what he's saying? He's saying to approach a sermon or the scripture or anything like that, there has to be a certain disposition of humility that says, you know what, in and of myself, I don't see everything clearly. And so, God, would you speak? Would you teach? I'm open. We have to have that kind of disposition to see the God who is. The thing about trying to fit God into our perception, right, or or seeking the God we want is, the reason we do that is because it gives us control. It allows us to keep calling the shots. Even the language we use about salvation sort of reveals that. We talk about how Jesus has come into our life. Why don't we talk about how we have come into his life? Because that's actually what's happening. The young man in our text has this same basic problem. Look again at verse 16. Behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So you'll notice how he addresses Jesus. He calls him teacher, which that seems fine to us, but not for Matthew. Uh, In Matthew, when someone calls Jesus teacher, it's usually a bad sign. It's usually an indication that they lack seriousness or sincerity because for Matthew, Jesus is Lord. He is not just a teacher. He is Lord. I was thinking about my uh, friends in Morocco, seeing God just do incredible things, and I asked him, what, what do you teach them over there? He said, just two things. If we can get them to accept the authority of Scripture and the Lordship of Jesus, then this kind of stuff happens. I think Matthew has a similar view which is only when one sees Jesus as the Lord will he be able to accept his teaching and to follow him. So this man's teacher is respectful, but uncommitted. He wants advice, not authority. And we do this kind of thing all the time. All the time. We, We make lifestyle choices whether it's related to how we spend our money, or our time, or where we find pleasure, all kinds of things. We just make these choices, and then we hear something that God has to say about that. And because these choices have now a grip on us, a kind of power in our lives, we don't submit ourselves to what we hear. We, we take it into consideration. Well, that's good. We call it wisdom instead of truth. And we just sort of, we want to consider that. We, we take counsel from people that might agree with us. But We don't have a posture of submission to it As it has authority in our lives We want advice We don't want authority But as long as we're trying to call the shots In our lives We will never encounter Jesus Personally Because encounters with Jesus Happen on his terms Not ours Also notice Who this conversation is about What good deeds must I do to have eternal life. Okay, so we're talking about good deeds, we're talking about eternal life, but God is nowhere in the conversation. The whole conversation is about what I can do and what I can have. Uh, his concept of, of goodness is based on human standards, right? Just, which we get by comparing ourselves to each other or just thinking about obedience in terms of like the external realities and not the internal realities of the heart. And so in those terms... Yeah, he has some goodness about him, but that is not the standard. And Jesus quickly corrects him. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, why are you asking me about what's good? There is only one good who is good. Jesus is saying, we we can't have a conversation about goodness without establishing the true standard of goodness, and that is God and God alone. You see, the only way he could assume or that we could assume any goodness in ourselves is is because we haven't grasped the utter goodness of God. It's a lack of knowledge of God's holiness and goodness. Last thing. Notice the way he thinks about or talks about eternal life. He treats it like another possession. I mean, this is a guy who's acquired a lot in life, and he just wants to add eternal life to the list of assets. Uh, the verb have is actually a very key verb. So it's in the, in the beginning where he says, what do I do to have eternal life? It's in verse 21 where, where Jesus uses his language. He says, you can, you can have treasures in heaven. And then at the end, he goes away sad because he has or had many possessions. And just the, the, the repeated use of it indicates that this man's preoccupation, the thing at the center for him is having, possessing. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner asked the question, is it wrong to want to have eternal life? Not necessarily, but he says, it's wrong if eternal life is an additional acquisition, if one wants it as a spiritual complement to all the other good things in life. Like if you, if you treat uh, faith or God or church as just like a, that sort of missing thing that'll kind of round your life out, you want to be a well-rounded person, so you need, you need faith, that's what, that's, you're adding. You're treating it like an acquisition. That's not how God relates to us. To put it clearly, bluntly, I guess, this man wants to buy eternal life. He's going to buy it with a good deed, which that good deed is probably making a donation. That was the, that was considered a really good deed, the almsgiving, giving to the poor. And I think that's probably what he has in mind. So he's asking, what, what do I do? How do I get eternal life? And Jesus It's saying, no, 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 it's not a possession. It's more like a journey. And so Jesus says, if you would enter life, you want to possess it. I'm I'm telling you to enter into it. To put it another way, this man likely thinks of heaven or the kingdom of God or life with God as a future reality to be secured now. And Jesus is saying, no, it's it's a present reality to be experienced now. Enter. Come in. So just in the way he asks the question, you can see there's a lack of understanding about who God is and how he works, how he relates to us. And for this man, it sort of manifests itself in a little bit of pride, right? Oh, I, I can do this. But sometimes it manifests itself in fear, which is kind of just the other side of the coin. But all of it has to do with a lack of understanding of who God is, because if you don't understand who God is, how would you trust him? Uh, When one of my children, who I won't name, but when Holden was young, uh, when he was really young, he, we'd be at the dinner table, and we would notice that anytime somebody went for a scoop of something, he would freak out, and it'd be like a whole bowl of it, because in his mind, it was going to, it was going to go away. He was, like, fearful of not having it, and so he would, like, pile on his plate with stuff and, like, move the things closer to his place, you know, and I'll be like, hey, what's going on there, buddy? And I don't even know if he was conscious of why he was doing it, but I would try to explain to him, like, okay, the stuff that's in that bowl, there's, a, there's another pot of it over there, and there's probably some leftovers of it in the fridge, and if there's not, there's an HEB two blocks away, and I can go down there. I'm trying to, like, help him see, like, where this came from, there's more of that, and I'm dad, and dad can get more if we need it. And above all that, God has promised to provide all of our daily bread. I'm, trying to be, I'm the pastor, I've got to throw that in. You see what I'm saying? He's freaking out in fear, and I'm trying to comfort him. I'm trying to assure him. No, 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 you, you, you've misunderstood who I am. I'm dad. I can get all the mashed potatoes you want. What, what behaviors in your life do you think indicate a misunderstanding of who God is? That you've got a dad who knows what you need. first thing is a knowledge of God, a right understanding of God. The second thing is a right understanding of ourselves. And this is where it uh, gets interesting. So, Jesus says in verse 17, the last part, he says, look, if, if you would enter life, then keep the commandments. And when you're just reading that, you think, wait, what? Like, is this what you would expect Jesus to say? We've looked at a lot of encounters in Matthew. And in all of them, the issue is always people's faith, right? That's the issue, faith. Not commandments. But Jesus says, keep the commandments. Verse 18. This is, I think, what the man wanted to hear. He he said, okay, good. Which ones? Because there's so many laws. Right? There's, there's the laws that God gave them, but then there's a lot of other laws that they made about how to keep the laws that God gave them. It's like the tax code. Right? Only, the ex- only the experts understand it, and that's how they want it. And so this guy's confused. You know, he's asking for like the TurboTax. He's like, can you just wa- walk me through this? Which ones do I need to do? And again, it feels like this conversation is just headed in the wrong direction. If someone came up to me after church and said, what do I need to do to have eternal life? I would not say keep the commandments And even if I did I would not get into a conversation About which ones to keep It would just feel so legalistic We would say things like No, 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 no Christianity is not rules It's a relationship That's that's probably what I would say But it's not what Jesus is saying Jesus actually gives him the rules And he tells him which ones Look what he says Verse uh, 18 Here's the rules you shall not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, and honor your father and mother. He gives them the last half of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and then he, he summarizes that last half with, with the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. What's he doing here? Well, I think the language indicates that the re- by giving him the last half, he's sort of as representative of the whole. I think what Jesus is saying, obey the Ten Commandments, right, which is to love God and your neighbor. As yourself. Um, But the reason he gives them the last half is because these are the visible ones. These have to do with our relationships with each other. These give proof that I'm serious about the first five, and that I'm doing these. But again, why is Jesus pointing him here? I think it's to teach this man and us something about God and about himself. In our gospel language, in our New Testament reality, uh, sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking the law is bad. Because we know, Paul tells us, you can't be saved by works of the law. So, so that's not the way for eternal life. It's bad. But it's not bad, is it? It's good. The law comes from God. And we've just established that God is the only one good. Good. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel, it was a revelation of Himself, of His goodness. It was a provision for the goodness of His people. And, and nothing is different with Jesus. Jesus' vision of life in the kingdom is the law of God. The whole Sermon on the Mount is dedicated to explaining what life in the kingdom looks like. It's an explanation of the law of God. When Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper, he says, Listen, guys, if you love me, you know know what you'll do? You'll keep my commandments. At the end, when he commissions them and he sends them to the world, he says, Go and make disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and doing what? Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is life in the kingdom, keeping the commandments. The law is good. And it's a good word for us to hear that the God who is, the God who became flesh and rescued us, the God who rose from the dead, the God who we will meet face to face, He wants us to obey His commands. The goal of the gospel is obedience to God. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, Look, you were slaves to sin. You were obedient to sin. But now, now having been saved by Jesus and by his grace, you become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And so we don't obey to gain favor with God. Paul's saying, Because you have God's favor freely in Christ, you have, now have the power to obey. But you should obey, walk in his commands. The heart, obedience from the heart, that's where we get a truer knowledge of ourselves. So Jesus says, keep the commands. He tells them which ones, and then the guy says, okay, good, I was hoping you'd say that. All these I've kept. Check, 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 check. All right, what else? What am, I, what am I still lacking? Whether he's aware of it or not, there is a, a great pretense in this man's life. And what I mean by that, there is, is this, there's a... Um, there's a great sense of false righteousness in his life. In simple terms, righteousness just means sort of what makes you feel like you're doing okay, what gives you a sense of credibility or standing. That's, that's, that's somebody's righteousness, and this man is a, is a good guy. He's, he's clearly lived a decent life. He's probably given a lot of money. He's been successful, and there's kind of this feeling in that time and maybe in ours that success and money kind of goes along with doing well with God, and and that that's what he's standing on. That's his footing. That's his righteousness. Uh, what is it for you? What makes you feel like you're doing okay? Before people, before God, what what gives you a sense of status or acceptability? The way you figure that out is ask yourself: What, what do I try to project in conversations? Or what do I try to hide? in conversations see because anytime we try to project ourselves as better than we are or anytime we try to hide the real us we're essentially saying all these i've i've done what else, any, do i lack anything else it's all pretense the good news for him and, and we feel it even when our own pretending is that he still feels like he lacks something and this is the point of the law If we'll give the law, the commandments of God, an honest look, they become like a mirror to us. They reveal what's going on below the surface in our hearts. And that's that's what happens here. Jesus is about to cut to the heart, the deep source of what he lacks. Verse 21. Jesus says, okay, if you would be perfect, mature, complete, so he's saying, what do I lack?" And she's saying, look, I, I, like, I like your ambition here. If you would be complete, do this. Go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the thing below the surface, the thing that's at the center for him is possessions, money and possessions. That's his footing in life. It's what gives him a sense of like he's doing okay. In fact, his money is what enables him to do good deeds. This is why Jesus goes after it. Not, not because there's something wrong with money inherently. Right? Paul says that it's not money that's evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And the, the root issue in this man's life was he loved his money and his things. Cherished them. And as such, they had a kind of power in his life. Uh, We might say it's not that he had money, but that money had him. You see what Jesus is getting after? He gives them the last half of the Ten Commandments because he's holding the ace card, right? Which is the first commandment. The first commandment is, You shall have no other gods before me. And now Jesus is saying, Okay, if money's not a god, then just give it all up and then you can have me, the true god, and the like, guy can't do it. He's breaking the first commandment and therefore, as Luther says, breaking all of the commandments. He is far worse than he ever imagined he was. His sin goes much deeper than he thought it did. And Jesus is showing it to him. He's revealing it to him. Now, look, Jesus doesn't command everyone to give everything away. But everyone should take note of this, that discipleship to Jesus involves our money. You you can't do a study on the kingdom of God and life in the kingdom and escape the economic reality. If you read through it, you begin to see, okay, the way that I handle my money and my things and how I feel about them is to indicate that Jesus is my Lord. Like that people should be able to look into my life in those areas and go, oh yeah, that person probably follows Jesus because only the crazy Jesus people do their money that way. It's supposed to indicate that. And so before we move on from, you know, this man's issue and try to figure out what our issue is, let's just stop and consider maybe this is our issue. Here's a good rule of thumb. The degree to which you read this text and, and want to make it just about this man, to that degree, it's probably also about you. So by asking this man to sell all he has, it's not that Jesus is trying to take what he has. He's trying to take away his his source of confidence because it's a false confidence. And when Jesus makes the proposition, the young man, he heard it, and he went away sorrowful, grieved, because he had lost so much stuff. Uh, Tim Keller makes a, a really great insight, imagine that. And he says, the real reason this man is grieved is because re- Jesus refused to stay academic. He comes to Jesus with a question. He feels like there's something I don't know. There's some, there's some command I'm not sure of, or I'm not sure which ones to do. And he wants to make the conversation about what he knows. We'll keep it academic, but Jesus gets real personal. And often we come to God wanting to make things theoretical and academic. We want to have lots of Bible studies and conversations about stuff, but we don't want God to make it personal. And Keller says, underneath it all, there's a power struggle that you have with God about your dreams. God wants the most important thing in your life. He wants the thing we think will give us power and joy and life without God. And until then, we're not right with God. And though we may not know it, that thing that's at the center that we're holding on to for life, is actually killing us. When God does surgery, when he cuts to the heart, it feels like he's killing us. But in reality, he's saving us. He wants, he wants to give us life. I, uh, I was at a different church speaking on the issue of honesty, talking about this, this issue of pretense, always trying to hide the parts of ourselves we don't want people to see and project the parts we do want them to see. And I had stole this phrase from another pastor in town. Uh, he, he talks about the last 10%. And I was telling this church, you know, in a, in a church environment where we value honesty and where we, we value openness and vulnerability, we're, we're pretty, we kind of put a lot of stuff out there. But, but most of us don't put it all out there. See, we're very skilled. I put enough out there of me that makes you think I'm being really honest so that you don't ask me about the other 10%. And so I, I'm really good. I know what percentage to give you so that you think that that's it. Right? We're good at this kind of thing. And I was just talking about what it would look like to give up the last 10% of pretending. And there was a, a young man in the congregation who I don't really know, I know him from afar. And he's like this guy. He's, he's successful, got it together, married a great girl, has a kid, kind of has everything going. But God cut to the heart that day because he had ten percent. And so he, he went to his wife and he said, "Listen, I have been holding out. I've been holding back this. For, I've been escaping pornography and 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 escaping to reliance upon drinking. It's like I just kept these things hidden." but it's not the real me. Here's the real me. And you know what? It was painful. I mean, she was hurt. There was weeks and weeks of pain. But then there was healing. Then there was fruit that came out of that. You know, Unless something dies, it doesn't raise again. He died to it. And then God brought all this fruit in his life, a more fruitful marriage. Uh, he, he's not only talking with other guys about this, he's leading groups now, and some of them around these specific issues. He experiences such freedom in these areas. See, the young man in our story goes away grieved because he doesn't want to let go, but this guy he let, who lets go comes out rejoicing, comes out encountering the glorious presence and power of God. If we want to have true knowledge of ourselves, we've got to let go of the pretense. Jesus says to the disciples, verse 23, He's like, I'm telling you, it is with great difficulty that a rich person can enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I'll tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Look, you've all heard these stories about how there's some gate where like, only a camel can get through if it gets down low. As, so if, to suggest sort of like, you can, be, you can love your money as long as you're sort of humble about it. No, that, there is no such gate. Right? There, there is no other explanation. When Jesus says, it is impossible, that's just what he means. He means it's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because you can't serve God and money. You can't love your money and things or have any other God for that matter And enter life in the kingdom. It's a gospel illustration. He's saying for the camel to go through an eye of a needle, something really miraculous, a transformation would have to happen. You see, the the young man comes to Jesus and says, what good can I do? And Jesus is saying, well, no, wrong starting point. There's no good in you. Only God is good. But then he tells him to keep the commands, which would be doing good. How can he do that? A miraculous transformation. What if the good God could get inside of him? Then goodness would overflow. And you know what it would look like? It would look like the law of God. You see, the law is not the source of righteousness, but it's always the course of it, Willard says. It's always what kingdom life looks like. But the only way you can live it out is to have a miraculous transformation where the good God comes inside of you. Jesus says, go and sell But then he says, come and follow me. See, the gospel demands everything you've got, but then it gives you everything God has. It's it's really a pretty good deal. Go and sell. Come and follow me. Lose your life. Find life. Stop storing up treasures on earth, and you'll have treasures in heaven. The man went away grieved because he thought he was losing everything, but he wasn't. He heard the command, go and sell, but he didn't grasp the What was being offered? Come and follow me. This is the good news of the gospel. What do you get when you lose everything? Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a field. And one day a man's in the field and he finds this treasure in this field of immense value. And what does he do? He goes and sells everything he has immediately and he buys the field so that he could have the treasure. And that's the question. Would you lose everything to buy the treasure that you have in Christ? Jesus gives his life away for us. Why? So we could be rich. This is what Paul says. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for this sake, for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And what kind of riches is he talking about? Treasures in heaven. More than that, the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.